This morning I'm so encouraged because we have an opportunity again to hear from another missionary, uh, my brother David Robles, uh, who is from Spain, along with his wife Loida. They are here with us. And I'm so encouraged by this brother and how the Lord has used him and others in the great country of Spain to advance his cause there. And I'm looking forward to him sharing with you guys uh, what the Lord is doing there. David is a graduate of Leon University, Spain, and he graduated from the Master's Seminary in 2004. Uh, he is also currently an adjunct professor at the Spanish Seminary at Grace Community Church. Uh, but I know that Spain really is where my brother's heart is. That's where he came from uh, with his wife, Loida, uh, to train at the, at the Master's Seminary. And so currently uh, in Spain, David is the dean uh, and professor at Ephesus Bible Institute in Leon, Spain, where the Lord is doing a great work, and he's going to have an opportunity to share. Uh, also, he is the head pastor of Leon Evangelical Church, and uh, such a wonderful ministry through that small local church there, but big in terms of the country of Spain. He and his wife, Loida, have three little girls, and they're here with us. And um, David is a faithful servant of Christ. I've known him for a few years and have just been so encouraged to hear how the Lord is using him and other brothers in Spain. And it's a privilege and a blessing, brother, to have you. Come on up and minister the Word of God. Good morning. It's good to be here. Thank you, Pastor Kempis, for your kind introduction. And the Lord is doing great things in Spain for his glory. And he's using us. And we are very grateful to be part, small part of what the Lord is doing in Spain. Before we go to the Word of God, I would like to share with you a little bit of what the Lord is doing in Spain. I would like to do it through a few pictures and a presentation. And usually when you think about Spain, I know we can go to the next slide, please. You may think about Spain and you may think as a country to go for vacation, maybe. Or you think about Spain, it comes to your mind, the running of the bulls that just happened last week. That's very famous all around the world. Everywhere I go, people ask me about the running of the bulls. I've never been there. I don't plan to go either. I just watch it from TV, like you. And it's a, spe it's a country with a lot of history, too. But I would like you to think this morning about Spain on the terms of a country that now has an opportunity for the gospel. And I would like to say an, an unprecedented opportunity for the gospel. We come from the city of Leon, and Spain is in southern Europe, and Leon is part of the northern part of the country. It's a province that has around half a million people. And within the province, there are very few evangelical churches. In our city, we are the only evangelical church. Then we are planting churches in the second and third largest cities of our province. So Spain is still really an unrich country for the gospel, and that's also part of our history. In 1480, the Spanish Inquisition started, and they persecuted everyone who believed differently than the Roman Catholic Church. And that was part of a kind of like church-state deal, and that was part of the Spanish Empire as they conquered many places in the world. At one point it was said that the sun never uh, sat down, or never was a sunset on the Spanish Empire, because it was all around the world. So they unified religion and the civil powers, and that made them very strong. So when the Reformation came about almost 500 years ago, next year we'll celebrate the 500 years of the Reformation, Spain was just opposing the Reformation as part 
of this political movement because it came out from Germany. And at that time, the Spanish king, Charles V, was the emperor in Germany, was Charles V in Germany. So this was not only religion, but it was a political thing going on. They just oppressed everyone who believed differently, and they persecuted those who believed in the gospel. And the Reformation never truly made it to Spain. Just a few monks in cloisters find out about uh, Luther's writing and later Calvin's writings, and they got saved. But as they got saved, they were burned at the stake, or they had to flee. And a few of them fled to some countries in Northern Europe, and they translated the Bible into Spanish, and that's even older than the King James. The Spanish version of the Bible goes back to 1569. But that Bible never made it back to Spain because the Spanish Inquisition and all the persecution. That was on for many centuries, and then when we had a few years of freedom, we had a civil war in 1936, and the general by the name of Franco, he took power, and he was in power as a dictator for 40 years in the country. And we didn't have religious freedom either. So it wasn't until recently, 1978, that the Spanish Constitution granted us religious freedom for the first time truly in our history. And it was just in the last 20 years that that developed, and we started to enjoy that freedom. So praise the Lord for that. That's an unprecedented opportunity for the gospel according to our history. And within that context, it's always special, but it's very special understanding our history that the city hall granted us a piece of property for free to build an evangelical church. That's a miracle in itself. That doesn't happen in the States, right? It's even more weird that it happens in Spain that we were persecuted for many years. The Lord used... The, govern, the gov, uh, governors and the, the mayor of our city just moved their heart and they granted us this piece of property that is worth $5 million just by itself. And this is very uncommon in Spain just to have an evangelical church, a building right along, a standing alone building. Because of the persecution, we didn't have churches to meet a building. And when we did, we just had storefronts because they were hiding from the authorities. So this is unique in our country. And the Lord is giving us a great opportunity. So along with the terrain, we started praying. As Pastor Kempis was saying, we were uh, a small church by American standards, a large church for Spain, 100 believers there. And we were praying the Lord, just trusting in Him that He will provide. We will do as much as we can because this is unique, a unique opportunity for the history of our country. So right now, this is how it looks. The new church building is up, all the outside, is finished with all the windows, and the Lord provided for all of it. It's all paid off by God's grace. And now we are starting to work inside, just doing the, the divisions and the drywall. So this is how it looks right now. And we are praying that the Lord will keep providing, and He has been done so far, for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom. And all we want to do, really, is just preach Christ and preach the gospel, and preach the word of God in Spain that is so needed for the gospel. And just make the best of this window of opportunity, this unprecedented opportunity for the gospel that God is giving us in Spain. So part of it is just not only preaching the word of God from the pulpit, but also training others to do likewise. There are few churches, and there are few pastors, and most of them are untrained, 
And most of them haven't had the opportunity to be taught how to study and expose the Word of God. So that we think that's the, the mandate from the Bible. Just train others to preach Christ, and they will plant churches, and they will just edify the body of Christ and preach Christ for many to believe by God's will. So we have Bible conferences for a year. Just people from all around Spain come, and sometimes even from Portugal and France, the nearby countries. Over 2,000 people have been impact, impacted in our country by these conferences attending. And also we have a website ministry. We, we, put, uh, we upload our conferences there for free. And we receive reports that people from many other countries, the Spanish-speaking countries, are listening to this conference, and the Lord is using them for His glory. We are also training men. We have a seminary that we started just recently, and we already had a graduating class. It's a three-year modular program. We have a diploma in expository preaching just to preach the Word. And we have students from all over Spain. They come six weekends a year, and they do intensive study there, class, and then they go away and they do, you know, by the Internet, their homework and all their follow-up. And they come from all over around Spain, Madrid, Barcelona, Bilbao, that is in the northern part of Spain, Seville, southern part of Spain. And even we have, we have one student from North Africa who is a missionary to Morocco, and we have another student from Portugal, and then this next year another student from Portugal is going to come. So the, the, the churches are asking us to come and train their men because this is an opportunity for them they never had before. So now in September, by God's grace, we're going to start a, an extension in southeastern Spain, in Murcia, by the Mediterranean Sea, eight hours away driving from an area. And we're going to have a class there. And even people from the Canary Island, Islands, they are going to come to our southeastern extension and be trained in the Word of God. So I hope this encouraged you as it encouraged me to see how the Lord is working in Spain. And this is an unprecedented opportunity. And I will ask you to pray for that and to also praise the Lord for what he's doing in Spain. As Pastor Kempis was saying, I'm here with my wife, Loida, and our three daughters, Abigail, Noah, and Sophia. And you would like more information after the service, we can hand you a prayer card. And also, if you would like to receive more prayers, updates, just let me know, and I will tell you how to receive those. We're going to open the Word of God now in James chapter 1. Now, many times we receive the blessing from God, right? And we are blessed. And if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you are blessed in Christ. We are all blessed in Christ. But sometimes life is difficult. And we face trials even when we are blessed in Christ. And this morning, we're going to see the joy of growing in the faith through trials. The joy of growing in the faith through trials. And this is only possible for believers, for those who are in Christ. So before we go to our text, I would like for you to think this morning, I'm truly in Christ. I trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. Because if you haven't repented from your sins truly... And you haven't trust through faith in Christ. Truly, this message is not for you. What you need is the gospel first. What you need is to repent from your sin. That is separating you from a holy and righteous God. This sin 
And you, as me, being sinful beings, being, being sinners, this is an offense to God. And he needs to punish that according to his nature and for his glory. And if you don't trust in God, you don't repent from your sins, and you ask for, for forgiveness, you don't trust in Christ as the only one who can save you and forgive your sins, then you are going to be punished for eternity in hell. So we don't want to talk about trials in this life first. We are not sure we are right before God for eternity. And Christ is the only one that can put you right before God. Because he lived the perfect life you and me cannot, without sin, as fully God and fully human. And then he took our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That we couldn't even pay. An eternity in hell doesn't pay for our sins. Doesn't make us righteous. Only Christ could pay fully for our sins. And God the Father received that sacrifice and was pleased to him. And Christ received the wrath of God instead of us. And he resurrected him at the third day, winning against sin and death. And now he's promising us that he's coming back for his children. And we're waiting for his return. In the meantime, we need to live in this life, right? And we need to face trials. But we are waiting for our glorification in heaven. Forever with Christ. Without trials, without pain, without sin. But you haven't repented from your sins. This morning, I ask you, I plead you, repent. Be reconciled with God. And Christ is the only one who can reconcile you. With God. If you are reconciled with God, we are blessed. Our greatest problem is solved, right? And we need to have the right perspective in life. But then many times we face trials. Seven years, a few years ago, I was enjoying a great vacation in Alicante. Alicante is by the Mediterranean coast, a very well known tourist place. And it is very popular tourist city in the east coast of Spain by the Mediterranean Sea was my first vacation on my own. Uh, my, my parents trust me enough. I was in the college, so maybe they didn't trust me enough because they sent me with my, with my sister for my first vacation on my own. But, you know, I, I like to think they trust me enough. So I went for, my, for vacation without them, and I was enjoying this great time, going to the beach, just relaxing, getting to know this new city. And then I just remember a few days after arriving there, you know, I had a family back home. And I called my parents just to let them know, oh, I arrived well, like three, four days later. So nobody was picking up the phone. I, I said, well, I'll call back tomorrow and see how they are doing and tell them how great time I'm having. So next day I called back home and nobody picked up the phone. So I started to get preoccupied. And I called my sister who lives in the same city and I asked her, what's going on? You know, our parents are not picking up the phone. This is weird. And she told me, don't worry. No, when someone tells you don't worry, probably you need to start worrying. <laughs> they are fine. They are healthy. They are okay. But our home burned down to ashes just a couple of days ago. The vacation was over. You know, I didn't have any fun being there. I was very preoccupied. So I went back home. And that was a terrible trial. 
for my family and for myself. And we could all share terrible circumstances, worse than that, or even better than that. But every trial is difficult in the time we need to face them. Every one of us are going to have to face trials. In fact, all of us already had trials in the past, for sure. The question is not whether or not you are going to have trials. The question is, how are you going to respond to those trials? What kind of attitude are you going to have in the midst of trials? Let's see what the Bible says about the kind of attitude we need to have in the midst of trials. In James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. This is the truth. And this is God's perspective on trials and what we need to know about trials and how to face them with the right attitude. Let's read together. James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is writing this epistle. It's the first thing we find in verse 1. James, this is a very common name. It was even a more common name at that time. So the text continues giving us another hint. James, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which on the other hand is a too general affirmation to give us a clear idea of who is this James exactly. So we need to look through the New Testament and we find four men by the name of James in the New Testament. And only two of these men are really serious candidates for being considered the author of this epistle. One of them is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. And the other one is James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus. The first one, James, the son of Zebedee and, and brother of John, we find that he died, he was martyred too early to have written this epistle. So it's pretty clear, I'm pretty sure to say that James, the brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote this epistle. And this epistle was written between the year 44 and 49 of our time. In fact, it's considered as the first epistle written in the New Testament. And many believe that it's the first book written in the New Testament. James first rejected Jesus, his own brother. He rejected him as the Messiah, Messiah but he later believed and he became to be known as the just, the righteous, because of his devotion to righteousness. And he was a witness of Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He was an associate to the apostles. We find this in Galatians chapter 1. And he became later a key leader in the Jerusalem church. A few years later, he's writing this epistle. And he's writing it, verse 1 continues saying, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. These are Christian Jews, the 12 tribes, Israel, outside of Palestine, who are dispersed abroad in the diaspora. Why they were abroad? Why they were outside of the land? Because they were persecuted. And they were 
persecuted unjustly. Herod Agrippa I, Acts 12, says that persecuted Christian Jews and they had to flee outside of their country. And they were scattered all around the Mediterranean Sea, what is today Southern Europe and North Africa. And as they need to escape, they left behind their country, their people, their belongings. Some of their beloved ones were killed. They lost all they had. And now they were in a different place. They didn't know the culture. They didn't know exactly the dialect of that, of that place, although they probably knew Greek, which was the, the common language at that time. They were in a terrible circumstance. Just imagine being in that circumstance. So James, in this context, knows that the first thing they need to hear is what he starts the epistle with. Verse 2, 3, and 4, telling them what kind of attitude they need to have facing those terrible trials. James is writing them an exhaustive practical manual on how to live their Christian life in the midst of those terrible circumstances. And he's telling them two attitudes they must have in the midst of trials so they will mature in their Christian faith. The same two attitudes we must have in worrying, if we are in Christ so we may grow in our Christian faith for Christ's glory. The first attitude we must have in the midst of trials, we find it in verses 2 and 3. Rejoice in the midst of trials. Rejoice in the midst of trials. Let's start with verse 2 that says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's very interesting. The first thing James, moved by the Spirit of God, this is the Word of God, is telling them is consider all joy. This sounds like crazy, right? This is what you tell somebody when he's going through a difficult situation? Probably not, right? Most of us will say, oh, poor of you, right? Or we will say, I'm sorry you are having to go through this difficult situation. Or I wish you wouldn't have to go through trials. Is the Bible saying that? We are, you know, usually we mean this well, right? But God has the right perspective. And he's using James to say, consider all joy. This doesn't make sense from a human perspective, right? But from God's perspective, it makes sense. And it's the perspective we need to have. Some of us may be thinking, well, you know, still I don't know. It sounds good on paper, but I'm not sure what James is meaning. You know, does it mean that I must be happy in the midst of trials? Or does it mean that I must look forward to suffering? And many times we are imposing ourselves burdens that the Bible doesn't teach. We need to pay close attention to what the text says and what it doesn't say. The text doesn't say that trials are the occasion for enjoying suffering. It doesn't say enjoy suffering, right? It doesn't say either that you gotta become a masochist looking forward to suffering. And for being a good Christian, you gotta learn to enjoy suffering. Not only enjoy suffering, but look forward to suffering. 
It doesn't mean either that trials are the occasion for all the joy that there is in the world and we got to throw a party every time we are in the midst of a trial. He's not saying that. He doesn't mean that you are not going to suffer in the midst of a trial or you cannot suffer. Trials are tough. We suffer. I can assure you that when my sister told me on the phone that my parents' home burned down, I broke on tears. That was my first reaction. That was a very difficult time, as many other times in the midst of trials. James and the Bible doesn't deny that. In fact, the Bible encourages us to suffer and to cry with those who suffer and those who are on tears. What does he mean then with this? He's saying, pay close attention, consider all joy. We could translate it, have joy. Or counted nothing but joy. What is he saying? He's not saying feel joy. Right? Usually with these reactions which are usually considered as emotional. We cannot put an emotional verb in front of them. Right? We think I need to feel joy. He's not using that verb. He's saying consider all joy. Our first reaction is not going to be feeling joy. We are human beings. The first reaction is sadness. And we don't enjoy suffering, right? But he's saying, look, you got to pause and consider, think the trial. Think that God is behind that trial. And this is an opportunity for joy. And you got to consider it in faith, trusting God because he says so, even when it doesn't make sense. Sense. And he's saying in a way that is consider all bad joy, nothing but joy. No have joy meets with resentment, hatred, frustration. All those things keep, you know, going on and back and forth and we struggle with these feelings. But then he's telling us, he's commanding us, this is an imperative. No, just let joy conquer your heart even in the midst of trials as you think right. We need the right perspective. That's why he says, consider all joy. Why can't we consider all joy? Because we know our God. We know who he is. And we know his attributes. If we don't really know God, we are not going to consider trials as an occasion for joy. And if we don't know his attributes, even if we are his children, then it's going to be very difficult to trust in God, in the midst of the circumstances. And we're going to trust on our feelings, on or our perspective, or someone else thinking, instead of God's perspective and God's thinking. Who is God? God is the all-powerful. God is sovereign. If that's happening, God is allowing that to happen, or even He's sending that to happen in the life of His children. Nothing sinful comes from God. But sometimes, bad things from our perspective are God's plan for our life. I remember just looking at a book title in one Christian store. I think it was pretty popular for some time. When bad things happen to good people, right? It's the wrong theology. We should say, why good things happen to bad people? Because we are sinners and we are sinful. We should be amazed that even one good thing should happen to us. And then now we are blessing Christ. And we are reconciled with God. 
And he's a good father. And we trust in him. And he's a good God. And he's a holy God. And he's a caring God. And he's a loving God, our father now. So in the, with that perspective, even the worst situation, by faith, we trust in what the Bible says. Because we trust in God. And we don't trust in ourselves. And we don't trust in our emotions. And we don't trust in our perspective. And we don't trust in our society values. We trust on God. As we grow on that, it's going to be an opportunity to consider all joy. When? The verse continues saying, when you encounter various trials. This is very interesting because in a few words, he's telling us a few things about trials that we need to know. Trials first are sudden. Trials are sudden, unexpected. Verse 2 says, when you encounter. And this verb encounter is very interesting because only appears three times in the New Testament. One time here in James chapter 1, verse 2. The other two times in Luke 10.30 and Acts 27.41. And to really understand what does it mean with encounter, we need to look at the context, how it's used this verse in the occasion, occasions it happens. It's only two more, so we can look at Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus used it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he says in Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and here is our word, our verb, and fell among or encountered robbers. This man encountered, fell among robbers suddenly. No previous warning. He couldn't plan ahead. Oh, I'm going to be robbed, so I'm going to get ready. No, they were behind the bushes or behind a rock. So this was totally sudden. Next occasion, this verb appears in the New Testament. is Acts 27, verse 41. And this is the context when Paul is in the midst of his journey to Rome. They were sailing on the, by the Mediterranean Sea, through the Mediterranean Sea. And we read, Acts 27, verse 41. But striking a reef where two seas meet, or striking a play, place where it encountered or felt surrounded by two seas. The current was so strong by these two seas that the, the boat just strike a place, a rock. And they were in big trouble. And these sail, sailmen, they were very experienced men in sailing. And they knew the Mediterranean Sea. This was not the first time they were doing that route. This was sudden, unexpected. But in our context, in our society, we like to plan for everything, right? In fact, we plan for everything. We have in our cell phone now our planning, right? Our calendar, in our computer, somewhere else. And then we like to plan tomorrow, what we're going to do next day, next week, next month, next year, five years, ten years. We don't even know what's going to happen after the church service, right? But we pretend we are planning. We are not God. Only God knows. But we try to plan, and our society encourages us to plan. There's nothing wrong with planning, right? But then we would like to plan for trials, right? I would like to just schedule on my time. When is a good time for a trial, right? <laughs> not today, but tomorrow. Not this week, but next week. Not this year, but next year. But never is a good time for a trial from our perspective, right? 
So God sends these trials suddenly, unexpected. When we encounter various trials, these trials are not only sudden, unexpected, but also they are diverse, various trials, literally many colored, variegated, as Joseph's coat of many colors. In other words, they are not two identical trials. It doesn't always come the same one. And when it's similar and looks alike, and we think, oh, I already handled that trial, it may kind of different shape and form, although similar. One year after my parents' home burned down, I received another call. I was in a youth meeting, and my pastor called me, and he told me, don't worry. So I started worrying. And then he next said, well, sit down. Then that's even worse. They ask you to sit down. Something really bad happened. Look, your family is all right. Um, you know, you had a fire at home again. But it was less and, you know, it was better. Only your room burned down. Well, that's encouraging, right? That gave me hope. Only my room. I thought maybe I already went through this trial. It was a worse trial, the whole home instead of a room. I know how to handle it. I didn't know how to handle it. I need to learn because the Lord was working in my life and the Lord was working in my character. And I may think, oh, I know how to face it. But the reality was that I needed that trial to keep growing in the Lord. Trials are sudden. Trials are diverse. How do we respond to these trials that God sends our way for our growing into the likeness of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Where is your attitude in the midst of trials? When you encounter, when you are in the trial, maybe we tend to be bitter or we feed an attitude of self-pity and we let others to feed that kind of attitude. Instead of bitterness, instead of self-pity, instead of complaining, the text is saying, have joy. Pause. Think. God is using this for his glory and for my goodness. Why I know this? Because I know who is behind it. And I know the character of God. And I know that he took care of my biggest problem. My sin. And he forgave me. And now he has given me a true hope for eternity with him. What can separate me from him? Who can do wrong to me if God doesn't allow it to happen? Do you remember Job? How God was in control even behind all those terrible trials. And he allowed the devil, he allowed Satan to just, you know, send difficult things. But God was still in control. And he told him, you can do anything you want, but just don't touch his life. And his family was taken. His wife was just, you know, just telling him, just blame God and, and die. He lost all his possessions. And he stayed trusting God because he truly knew his character. And at the end, he knew him better because he ends the book saying, oh, I thought I knew God. It was just by hearing. But now I see him. That's the response of every true Christian 
knowing our God in the midst of every trial, knowing that they are not in vain. Because verse 3 tells us, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God doesn't need to give us a reason, but He's kind enough that He gives us a reason too. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There are four verbs that could be used in the New Testament for knowing. And He's using one verb that means knowing from experience. You already know, if you've been a Christian for a few months, a few years, you already know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So just persevere there. Consider all joy because you know the result. You know that these trials are not in vain. What is the result? Endurance. This is the idea of a heavy load. It will be like getting a rock of 200 pounds. And every morning as you get up from bed, you need to carry it everywhere you go. And trials feel that way many times, right? You don't even want to sometimes get out of bed. It's because you got to take that load again and just go through life with that great trouble and problem, that great load. But the Lord is saying, look, you know that this is going to produce good. You are going to be more patient. That could be translated also endurance. This word endurance presents the picture of being under a heavy load and staying there instead of trying to escape. And the result of facing trials and overcoming them in faith is an endurance that grows progressively. An endurance that allows us to have a mindset that endures trials and pressures encountered. How does happen? Have you observed the strength of stainless steel? Stainless steel is used where it's necessary strength, especially against corrosion, strength against very high or very low temperatures. And the key to the stainless steel, to this strength, to this resistance, to this endurance, is an alloy. An alloy of iron and chrome. And for me, you know, I study no science. I study the, the history part of my studies at the university. So I don't know much about it. So I thought, well, the iron is the one that gives this strength, right? No, it's the chrome that gives this strength to the stainless Steel, that endurance is the characteristic of stainless steel. This is what trials do for believers. Trials are for believers like chrome for iron, that element which gives us the necessary endurance as the Lord comes back for his church. But every trial brings forth endurance. The verse is saying, knowing from experience that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And some of us that we've been in the Christian faith for some time, we know from experience that not every trial produces endurance. And we know from experience that not every trial helps us to grow in the Christian faith. Sometimes when the trial ends, we are worse than when it started, right? Because we didn't respond the right way. What does it mean then? The text says, the approved part of your faith. Literally, is the approved part of your faith, the genuine part of your faith. He's not questioning that these believers were believers or not. He's questioning how mature they were, how advanced they were in their faith. And he's saying, look, trials show where we are at in that time. And we are approved or not in the area we are tested. And most of us, we usually think more highly of, our, of ourselves than reality, right? 
And many times when everything is peaceful and okay in life, we may start thinking, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good in my Christian life. And I'm very patient. And I'm very loving. You know, I have joy. And all the fruit of the Spirit is in me, right? Sure. Well, let's test it. This is like thinking, they are showing up for an exam, they are going to give you an A. And some students think that way, right? We learn it the hard way many times, just failing a test. If you don't study and you don't come prepare for the test, just showing up, writing your name, and just guessing the question, it's not going to pass the exam, right? It's the same for the trials. It's going to test your faith. It's going to show where you are at. And it's going to show us. It's going to humble us. And many times it's showing us, well, as I'm not as mature as I, as I thought. But praise the Lord, he's sending this trial to help me to be more like his son, Jesus Christ, as he is perfecting me in this progressive sanctification. I already justified and right with God. Nothing I can do about it. Christ did it all. Praise the Lord for that. But then we are being progressively made to the image of his son. And we need trials as part of it. And the Lord is using his word. is using his spirit within us. He's using the body of believers around us. Prayers as the mean to face trials the right way. And make us more like his son. The approved part of our faith. He says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. What kind of attitude are we going to have? Are we going to have joy knowing that this is going to be for our good? Does this trial, God, a good God is behind it? And as we persevere and as we respond in the right way, this is going to produce a result that is going to bring much honor to our Lord and Savior. And with that in mind and with the right perspective, then even though we don't feel joy, we are not going to be controlled by our feelings, but we are going to be controlled by the Spirit of God and His Word and then have joy and think, okay, this is an opportunity for joy. And maybe five minutes later already we feel differently, right? We need to go back to the Word. We need to go back to prayer. We need to go back on dependence on our good Lord and Savior. That's the first attitude we need to have in the midst of trials. But verse 4 gives us the second attitude we must have in the midst of trials. So we grow in the faith for Christ's glory. The second attitude is persevere in the midst of trials. Not only rejoice in the midst of trials, but persevere in the midst of trials. And James already introduced that thought at the end of verse 3. And then verse, verse 4, he develops that idea, persevere in the midst of trials. Verse 4 continues saying, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying, let endurance. It's very interesting because he's using an imperative. An imperative that is a present imperative. Well, you may be wondering, what does it mean? It means it's a command first. And it's a command that is a continuous command. It's not a command for now or for yesterday or for tomorrow. It's something that needs to be a characteristic in our life. And he's saying, let endurance stay there, persevere continually. He's commanding us to let persevere and finish his work. 
His good work. It's like what happened this week. In Spain, we, are, we follow very much cycling in general. And these this weeks, they are, they are running the Tour de France. Maybe some of you like cycling or even heard about it. This is the, the best cycling race in the year. Three weeks race. They do everything. And usually the, the best... The best stages are with, with the mountains and when end at the peak of the mountain. So this man, this cyclist, Chris Froome, is the best right now. And he has won two times, and he's, he looks like he may won a third time this year. So they were in this final stage just climbing this, this peak, and they were three in advance of the rest of the favorites to win this race. And then all of a sudden, everything's very narrow. Maybe you've seen it on TV. And then people all around just making it more narrow. And these people just suffering there. And then everyone around them. And there are bikes trying to open the trail for them. And then one of these bikes just stopped suddenly. And they were behind him, this bike. And two of the cyclists, one of the Chris from, just fell. And their bike was just broken. So it was very interesting because most of these guys will wait for their car. So they give them a new bicycle. But this man, instead of waiting for the car and for the bicycle, he started running uphill. The first time that we've seen anything like that. He was so focused, persevering. I need to get to the goal. I need to finish this stage. I need to get to the finish line. I don't want to lose time whatsoever. He started running. He made it to the front cover of most papers in newspapers and internet in Europe and most part of the world. That's the idea of perseverance. We're going to have many obstacles. We're not going to feel like it. Everything sometimes is going to be like just horrific. But we need to stay focused because God is telling us to stay focused and he's saying persevere and we got to be committed to follow this command wherever it happens as this Cyclist Chris Froome was committed to finish that race even without a bicycle. What is this perfect result? Let endurance have its perfect result. That's the finish line of every trial. A perfect result. Not perfect in a strict sense. It's not saying that everything is going to be fine. It's not saying that every trial is going to end like a Disney movie. It's not saying that. Sometimes we get these ideas in our mind. They don't come from the Bible. Perfect result, perfect means mature. And it was used for animals who were full grown. Not perfect animals, but full grown animals. In this case, he's saying that if you endure trials, the perfect result of enduring those trials and passing them is that you are going to grow in maturity of your character. Maturity of your character. You are not going to be perfect, as I'm not perfect, as anyone is perfect. Until we are glorified in heaven. But we are going to be mature, perfected to the image of Christ. The result then is maturity. And our Christian life is a process. And we need to keep growing in our way to maturity. And enduring trials and facing them the right way as they bring their perfect result are conforming us more and more like Christ. And in our journey to maturity... We must persevere in the midst of trials so that, verse 4, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James, with this expression, introduces a new insight, a new nuance. He uses the same word for perfect as he used before, 
mature, a full around maturity, a general maturity. But now he has a, a new insight. Complete, olocleroi, means complete in all its parts. Used to be a word used in the Old Testament for animals that they were taking to the sacrifice to God. And you remember that Israel many times took animals with, you know, one leg, without one leg or one eye, you know. So that wasn't supposed to be the animals that were offering sacrifice. He uses the same word here, meaning complete in all its parts. Perfection, not only maturity, but rounded out as more and more and more parts of righteous character. Not only be patient. Maybe the Lord has been working in our lives for a long time, through many circumstances, many trials, and we are, you know, prematuring, maybe patient, being patient. Maybe not as much as we will need, right? But then we need to grow in love, right? Or joy, or loving kindness, or self-control, or many other ways. So this is not only a general maturity, but a specific maturity in every area of our character as the fruit of the Spirit. And if we persevere, instead of trying to escape from trials, then the Lord is going to produce this perfect result as He is making us grow in our sanctification to be more like Christ. So we know this. Are we going to persevere? In the year 480 before Christ, one of the most amazing events in human history happened. That year, the Persian Empire tried to conquer one of the few peoples still enriched by his power, the Greeks. And they sent an army, historians say, that at least an army of 250,000 soldiers. Some historians say up to 2 million soldiers. So we'll stay with the 250,000 soldiers. That is a pretty large army. And they were facing the Greeks. And the Greeks only had 7,000 soldiers. So 7,000 soldiers against 250,000 soldiers. Who's going to sign for that war? Who's going to go to that battle? The Greeks did. And their leader, by the name of Leonidas, the Spartan king, selected 1,400. He didn't want to lose more men than needed in this crazy battle. So he selected just 1,400 men, and he went to this Thermopylae Pass by a cliff and a, a very narrow beach by, by, the, by the sea. So they will be more, you know, in equal forces as they were trying to fight. They lost more of their soldiers. But at least this encouraged the rest of the Greek cities that summer. And the Persian Empire never conquered the Greek cities that summer and never before. Because they persevered. And they will, this will be a great example, especially for any context, right? For a motivational talk, for work for family, for facing circumstances. But we are not here for a motivational talk, are we? We are Christians. Who is our greatest example? Christ. Do you remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? Christ is the perfect example of perseverance. When he was facing his death on the cross and he knew what was coming, he was going to receive the wrath from his Father. And he's praying, Lord, as fully, fully God, but fully human, he was suffering. And he wasn't looking forward to that suffering. And he was praying, Father, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to take this cup. But not my will, but yours. 
We need to pray that way. Many times we pray the Lord, please, I want to go through this trial. That's okay to pray that way. But next we need to say, but Lord, not my will, but your will. And you allow this trial. Help me to persevere. Give me the strength I lack. Give me the endurance I don't have. Help me to grow, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for being a good father. Thank you because you promised you're going to be taking care of me. And you are going to be behind all of this. And the result is going to be a good result for your glory. Christ persevered. What was the result? He went to the cross. He died, but he resurrected. And here is the result. You and me, if you are in Christ. His people. His church. That's the result. It didn't look like it, right? It looked like he was defeated by the Roman Empire. He died. It looked like he wasn't even God. They were mocking him. Oh, you're the son of God. Just get out of that cross. You say you have power to save others. Why don't you save yourself? Right? Imagine being his follower at that time. How would you feel? Well, just defeated. But God resurrected Christ. It wasn't what it looked like. Trials are the same. Many times it looks like we are defeated. But God is still in control. Let's trust God, trust God who is all-powerful and trust Him for every trial. Just after I finished seminary, I went back to Spain. And the first few years, within three years, one day I, I received a call my, by, by my mother. And he told me, look, your dad is not feeling very well. And if you may come and go with me to the hospital in the ambulance, that will be helpful. So I was in the church office, and that was just 10 minutes away walking. So I just ran home. And when I arrived home, the ambulance was already out there. And just within 10 minutes, when I went upstairs, the Lord already took my father to his presence. I couldn't even say bye. I couldn't do anything about it. That was totally unexpected. That was a terrible trial for our whole family. But the Lord was good. And he helped us to persevere. And he helped us to learn to grow in joy even in the midst of the, of the worst circumstances. And he helped us even to preach at his funeral. And to preach his favorite verse, John fourteen six, When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. None comes to the Father instead for me was a great opportunity for the gospel as many, many, many unbelievers came to his funeral. It was a great opportunity for me and for the rest of our family to trust in the Lord and to learn to keep trusting the Lord and more, as more trials came afterwards and more trials are to come. Just last year, in our church, we had a terrible situation. The Lord is blessing the ministry way beyond our imagination with this new church building, with the seminary. But also, we had a terrible trial in our church. And we lost many people in our church and, and just false accusations. Many things going on for a whole year. And the Lord is still good. And He's helping us to go through those circumstances. Just to stay focused. Okay, we don't know what's going to happen next. Just make sure to know what the Bible says. How to respond to this. And stay to that. Just keep trusting the Lord. And just ask Him to help you. To trust in Him and to follow what the Bible says is the right way to respond 
to that circumstance, even as terrible as it may be. My first preaching days after my father's died was in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 and 16. I would like to close with those words. I hope it's an encouragement to everyone here this morning, even as some of you may be going through severe trials. And his people were going through very severe trials. Israel were going through very severe trials. And they started to doubt about God's goodness, about God's mercy. And Sion said, Isaiah 49, 14, The Lord has forsaken me. Many times we feel that way, right? We even think that way. They continue and say, And the Lord has forgotten me. Sometimes we are in the same situation, right? In the midst of the trials. This is God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? That's the perfect example, humanly speaking. Even this may forget. Like God is not like any other human being. But I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God hasn't forsaken his people. God never is going to forget his people. He's our good father. He's taking good care of us. Let's trust in him and respond with the right attitudes, with joy and perseverance in the midst of any trial. So we may grow in our Christian faith for God's glory and Christ may be exalted in the midst of the most terrible circumstances. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning before you, recognizing that we are weak, that we don't have all the answers to life and to terrible circumstances, but we also recognize that you are God and we are not. Sometimes we don't need to know all the details, but you know them. And now we know you, Lord, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we are your children. And you have revealed yourself to ourselves. And you have forgotten our sins. And you have given us a good life. And you have reconciled us to you through Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for that, Lord. And now now as we know you more and more through your word. And your spirit within us. Help us to trust more and more in you. Help us to respond the right way. A God honoring way. In the midst of trials. And all of us go through trials. God be merciful to your people. Encourage your people this morning. And help us. Empower us by your spirit. To respond in a way. That is going to produce endurance. It's going to produce the perfect result. Be more and more like Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.